Hello, Elmtown. It's Kevin Yank again, back with another episode. It's great to be back doing these again after a bit of a break. So, Stroffel, is it anywhere close? Yeah, pretty close. Stroffel. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the show, regardless. Uh, thanks for joining me. It's always great to get uh, someone we've uh, not talked to at No Red Ink uh, before um, and to hear a little bit about your perspective on all the exciting work that goes on with Elm there. Yeah. Before we dive in, I'd like to take a moment to uh, recognize our sponsors. As usual, we have Joel Claremont, uh, who is paying the bills for our podcast hosting. You can find him at J Claremont or J C L E R M O N T on Twitter. Uh, he runs the Milwaukee Functional Programming and Milwaukee PHP meetups. And if you're anywhere near Milwaukee, he would love to hear from you and, uh, I'm sure uh, would welcome you to one of those meetups. Also, CultureAmp, which is uh, the company that I work for. Our product team is based in Melbourne, Australia, and we build a, a web application that companies all over the world use to make their workplaces better places to work by putting culture first. We are hiring for our Melbourne, Australia team, and that team does write Elm in production. So if you're interested and you're anywhere near us in our general neighborhood, feel free to hit up culturamp.com slash jobs to see the open roles. And uh, you can always, um, always ping me on Twitter if you'd like to talk about what that would be like. Why don't you introduce yourself for our listeners? Yeah, uh, as I said before, my name is Stoffel. I've been in Erling since... Uh, for a little bit over three years. Um, I, as many others, joined Nordink um, because of Elm. I first heard of Nordink probably through one of Richard's talks or maybe Evans. I was the first employee that was more than nine hours away from the head office in San Francisco, which... Um, wow, yeah. Yeah, was initially a bit of a challenge, but um, now we are, um, I think, 12 people in Europe and we are pretty used to um, um, that long of uh, time distance between people. Right. So you've got other people who are online at about the same time as you on Slack. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty nice to have someone <laughs> present have at some the same company. time. Have some company. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Was, uh, was No Red Ink as, as um, distributed or, or remote first of a company as it is now when you joined it? It was um, like a remote company before i think almost since the start there was always someone remote but um, mostly in in the states and before i joined there was a um, noah who was in sweden and uh, michael glass in berlin uh, but both of them like worked kind of late ish mm. <laughs> uh, and because of a family that wasn't uh, an option for me yeah, right. So you became aware of No Red Ink through Elm. Um, yeah. Did you actually get to write any Elm before joining No Red Ink, or was that just something you uh, you were looking forward to learning uh, on your first day? Yeah, that was something I was looking looking to um, learn uh, at No Red Ink. Uh, I was like a little bit trying to introduce it in previous companies. I, I um, oh yeah wrote a little tool to hook an elm update function kind of into a redux app uh, i don't know oh, yeah that was like a good idea <laughs> <laughs> i have written that very same uh, port yes what was your story before like what made you the kind of engineer that would get 
interested in an esoteric programming language like Elm is the kind of question I'm I'm wanting to ask here because that's not everyone who goes along to the the Elm meetup or 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 reads the Elm tutorial. So Switzerland has like a kind of a different education system than most other countries. So I did an apprenticeship before going to university for four years uh, as a programmer at, at like a huge um, insurance company and uh -huh. worked there for almost 10 years, I think. And then I went to university, but still like worked as a programmer uh, on the side. And during university, I, I was like a very bad student. I like almost never went to classes. Uh, I wouldn't <laughs> recommend that to the to people still in university, but that's how it went for me. And like during that time, I did spend most of my time actually researching stuff and learning stuff by myself instead of like taking part in classes. Um, mm -hmm. But that was when I started to get interested in functional programming, mostly um, in JavaScript because I was like working as a web developer at the time. I, I also think like I'm, I'm someone who learns best um, if I can use uh, a technology on the job and like I'm bad at like figuring out my own little projects and stuff. And I, I've never, never really had that and except for, for libraries and, and um, maybe tools, um, which we might dive into later. And so is that a question of like having a problem to solve that is yeah. more important than just scratching your own itch? You feel like uh, totally. a responsibility to someone else for being successful? Yeah, and, and I, I, I like um, making my current experience at, at work better over like just playing around with something on the side without like actually having an effect um, on my own and my coworkers um, productivity or experience of, of uh, ease of using things. Um, so I was always like looking to like back when I was um, working in JavaScript mostly, I was trying to like introduce new patterns there or like find a way to, to maybe introduce Elm, as I said before, with Redux and Elm. I was always like trying to make that experience better instead of like putting a lot of, of effort into a side project that doesn't actually help my, my own experience at work. So I've got a list here of like some of the projects I've seen your name mentioned against. Jetpack was the thing that kind of made me hit you up for this uh, appearance. But like you've been involved in Elm Test a bit. We've heard Richard talk about Elm Test before, but there are other contributors to that project, and you you worked on a on a certain part of it. There's Elm Verify examples as well. What sort of order did those come in like i thought maybe we could start with the first one and work our way along that, that sounds good i, I think chatpack was probably my first um tool in that category and it's kind of like a similar story to the tools that we talked about before and it's written in haskell and it's actually my first project in haskell like i did okay like, I definitely want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. it's like my first real exposure to Haskell. And before I, I obviously I read some book, I never really like did much with Haskell. And I was like still actually quite intimidated by, by the language because it's, yeah, it, it has kind of a steep learning curve depending on, on how you're using it, I think. Um, yeah, so Jetpack was our first Haskell code, I think, in our link. Maybe we had like some hack day um, 
projects going on at the same time. I don't remember exactly the, the order, but I think it was like the first Haskell code that we used daily, basically. Um, so how, how that project started was we, when we switched from or upgraded from Elm 16 to 17, we also introduced Webpack and we have we don't have just one Elm app. We have multiple, I don't know how many, but like quite a few Elm apps mm -hmm. that we compile to separate JavaScript files. And Webpack tended to be very slow at that time for us. Mostly, I think, because it like it had to build everything all the time. And there was no way, no easy way to just compile one one app. And it also like had some some race conditions uh, issues um so we weren't happy with with that package i would hazard to guess if you have moved beyond the kind of hobbyist stage with elm and you are building a, a real world production app my guess is that most people are using webpack for it at the moment my guess is that some people who are building their Elm with Webpack today would feel some combination of those pain points still today. And I, I'm wondering if, like, what made abandoning Webpack and building your own thing a attractive choice for you at the time? And, and what would make it an attractive choice for someone today? One ma major reason why we like even consider building our own thing is that we just didn't use most of the features Webpack offers, like we didn't re we didn't have um, any plugins for optimizing things. We had CoffeeScript um, and SCSS at, or at that time, so we did compile Elm. We didn't leverage everything that Webpack has to offer. And also at the time, the, the Elm compiler was significantly slower than it is today. Today it's like almost immediate, right? So I think. Yep the performance issue might be slower with Webpack. Today, I, I honestly haven't used it since we, we switched away from Webpack. We have like a separate project that isn't using Jetpack at the moment, which okay. we might change and that is using Elm Live and we are quite happy with that as well. So I think it was a combination of like performance issues and not being able to compile just the things we need to compile and uh, just we didn't need any of, of the features it offered. You talked about how you like working on things that make people's experience better. Was Jetpack, was it an experiment you started or was it a, we have to put some engineering effort into solving this, let's get a team and we're gonna build the thing that is gonna be our future? It was an experiment at first um, that someone else started just as a proof of concept with, with Ruby. And we hit a point where we, we saw that this could potentially solve a lot of problems. And basically I got asked if, if I'm interested in, in taking that over and building, building a tool. And I, I think I, I discussed it with Richard and I have no idea how we landed on Haskell, but he knew that I was interested <laughs> in Haskell. Uh, we were just like, well, should we try Haskell for this? Uh, and so. Yeah, we kind of hit that off. It was like maybe a quarter of work um, just for myself. Um, mm -hmm. At that time, no one else was, was really involved in that. Um, but by now, there are other people who, who help maintain it and contribute things to it. Um, yeah, so I, I started working on that um, as my first Haskell project. And 
I was very happy that I could work on something that had an immediate impact on people I care about, like their daily experience. Um, and that was definitely a huge factor in, in motivating me. Yeah. Right. As someone who knew Elm and was learning Haskell or, or, or didn't know Haskell yet, what was the experience of learning Haskell like? Was it a, a programming language that the more you learned about it, the more excited you were to use it? Or was it, was it the, the hard learning curve that it has a reputation for? I was aiming to see it as Elm and try to like keep it that way, like right as, yeah. as uh, kind of right in the, so, uh, in the area of Haskell where I was already comfortable with from, from my experience with, with Elm. So if there had been a version of Elm that you could run on your build servers and in, in, in your development environment, um, you would have written it in Elm. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. yeah, okay. Definitely. So you wanted something Elm-like that could do that sort of job. Yeah. Although, like, I, I, I started to, like, experiment with, with like, different patterns. I, I even, like, tried the free monad approach, um, but it was just kind of overkill for the problem I was trying to solve. And I also, like, experienced, obviously, with, like, different type classes and things and, and was just trying to like find my way um, um, forward. And I think it was helping me a lot to kind of solve a problem very pragmatically and keep it practical over just reading a book and trying to gain all the knowledge that there is of Haskell. Like it's an, a huge language and I think it's yeah, that just doesn't work for me. Just reading something and then trying to to start from like having the knowledge of like the whole language. I think it's it's easier to just try it out and kind of like how you start working with Elm. It's like always, well, we I will just write a function. The compiler will help me somewhat. Obviously, the Haskell compiler isn't as friendly as as Elm's, but it still guides you somewhat um, towards the right solution. Write a little bit, run into a barrier, learn what you need to get over it, and then keep writing some more. Totally. And um, yeah, there are a few coworkers that already in cool were already uh, quite experienced in in, in Haskell, um, like AV wrote Elm format in Haskell, and obviously Evan and uh, a few others who were able to to help unblock me if I got stuck. Um, yeah, and. That was basically how we got to, to write Jetpack. Um, I, I don't even know if someone else outside of Neuralink is using it. And I don't want to like say this is like the Webpack replacement or anything. It's way less powerful. It just does the thing we need and that's it. The little note at the top of the readme on GitHub I think is really nice. It's kind of saying, hey, we believe in the value of sharing this kind of work, but please don't feel like this is a supported product, and we we might not be able to accept every contribution. Don't feel bad about forking it. Yeah, yeah. Totally. And I really like that. We've been talking about that at CultureAmp a little bit, of like when we write a piece of software that there is no reason not to let the rest of the world see it. What is the best way to put something out into the world that way without creating an expectation of support or a community model around it? 
I've been experimenting with the language of like public repo rather than open source repo. I like that. Uh, I find it it helps with um, with other leaders at the company when they hear, "Oh, we are open sourcing something," they immediately go, "Oh, that's gonna be a, a distraction or a, a, um, a draw on our resources." But if I say, "Oh, we're making the repo public," it's a lot less scary. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I like that. And maybe one of the things about Webpack is you weren't using most of the features. What actually are the features of Jetpack? Okay, so what it does is basically it we define entry points that are JavaScript files, and those JavaScript files have required to to order or it can also be CoffeeScript, and but hopefully eventually that goes away. But um, it just has requires to either order. Um, CoffeeScript files or no packages or Elm. And mm -hmm. what Jetpack does it, is it parses um, that entry point and tries to resolve all the requires um, up mm -hmm. until it hits either an end or uh, an Elm file. With that, it like has a tree and it starts to compile everything as much as possible in parallel. Um, once it has everything compiled, it basically bundles everything up and adds a little wrapper function around that so that the requires are um, actually pointing to other functions inside the same file. And that's it. That's the, our compiled bundle and voila. And so when you say something like it parses the file and finds the require statements, mm -hmm. a tool like Webpack, um, it is actually doing quite a deep, like it is doing a, a, a deep analysis of the file. It, it's it often for a language like JavaScript, it's actually building an AST and, and like understanding the full syntax of the file. Mm -hmm. Does, is Jetpack doing that kind of thing for the file formats that it supports, or is it much more of a lightweight kind of regex scan for something that it, a, a, a pattern of characters that it recognizes as a require statement? It doesn't use regex, but um, it's definitely a lightweight parser that just like yeah. finds like based on on a simple parser tries to find the the required statements. Maybe something to note is also that in addition to Chatback, we started to use Shake, um, which is a build tool um, written in Haskell that is basically uh, responsible for figuring out what to rebuild. It doesn't just Run Jetpack. It also like runs Elm format and and other linters and, and and things we have. All right. So when something changes, it knows what what processes to trigger in response to that change. Exactly. So that also like triggers Jetpack so that we don't need to define which entry points do I want to build. It it now knows. Um, it that like does actually in Shake a much deeper. Um, analysis of the tree. It also like it also parses all Elm files and builds a tree of the Elm dependencies, and therefore knows if you change this Elm file, I need to compile this JavaScript entry point with with Jetpack. 
Well, as someone who's worked on Elm tooling for Webpack before, that I've seen that same code in JavaScript for Webpack. I think I think Richard Feldman actually wrote that module, <laughs> the the kind of Elm traversal for Webpack. That would be nice to have solved for you rather than have to write it yourself. Yeah, um, it, that's something I I'm planning to eventually move to Jetpack directly, so that we can we can leverage that directly, um, but. We've had very good uh, experiences with Shake so far. We use it now in in two major repos, and it's it's very nice to to build your system and like it keeps track of all dependencies and caches things. And um, it's also I think a, a cool, easy way to start learning Haskell because you write mm -hmm. your your rules in Haskell with kind of like a DSL. And you don't really yeah. need to understand Haskell to just write out some rules and like copy paste things. I think it's nice to just jump in and do something very practical to solve um, your workflow. And yeah, that's that's been very, very helpful for onboarding people to Haskell. Hmm. So Jetpack was the first Haskell at No Red Ink. Is there now other Haskell at No Red Ink? There's now other Haskell in the ring. Yeah, we started, I think, at, in a hack day, Jasper and Hardy started, a, or it might just have been Hardy. Um, he started to, to work on a proof of concept of a small Haskell service um, that would just like implement one feature just to see how that would look like. And yeah. over time, we got more interested in that and it was like very successful. And so we decided to have like actually a small team building something slightly bit bigger. And they, that was two people uh, at times for like they were all, and while they were working on, on that feature, they were also onboarding people and like kind of had people as a visiting member of their team. That work was for almost a year and we were very happy with the outcome. And one major thing that we really liked about using Haskell is that we were able to have type safety basically from the database into Elm. And so yeah. like the whole stack is basically type safe. And so if you break something in, or if you change something in your uh, business logic and uh, the schema doesn't match your types, it will crash. Um, but also if you change your schema, it will propagate all the way until Elm. So I've seen a, I've seen a few different versions of that, like full stack type safety with Elm on the front end and Haskell on the back end over the years. How is the contract between the, the Haskell and the Elm implemented in your case? So we are using servant and uh, servant Elm. Um, so Servant is a web framework uh, for Haskell that, where you basically write your APIs um, as types. And because of that, you can write different interpreters that produce like different output. So we uh, can, from that API, we can generate um, Haskell, uh, sorry, Elm uh, APIs that are basically just the requests with the right types. Um, and also produce types uh, for the Elm side. We also generate uh, Ruby clients so that we can talk from our 
Ruby code directly with, with Haskell. We're getting a bit deep into the architecture of no red ink at the moment, but I really enjoy this stuff. So generally when you're working, are the, are the front end and back end like in a single code base? And so you work on the back end, you make changes to the API, the Elm files get generated and your Elm files are immediately consuming those types? Or is there more of a, a separation between the front end and back end where those types are published with, with version numbers and things like that? So where we have Elm code that is talking directly to Haskell that lives in, in the same repo. So we mm. like started to have the, the Haskell stuff separate and it looks like we might collapse the, the two repos again to like improve uh, the integration between um, the original uh, Nordic code and the, the newer Haskell stuff. For the Ruby, Ruby code that we generate from Haskell, which lives in the other repo, we during our CI run, we make a pull request to the other repo with the new updated code and right. inform people on Slack that here is a new, new version of this. Oh, nice. Yeah. That sounds very elegant. Um, and uh, I, I, uh, I see why you would be happy with it. That's very cool. Yeah, we also looked at um, different solutions just a half a year ago we were running an experiment with PostgreSQL to like create GraphQL APIs and consume that in Elm and it didn't quite fit our use cases and yeah I'm, I'm really happy that this kind of like started our endeavor in Haskell at Nordlink and now we are like onboarding more and more people and trying to make it simpler to learn and more approachable. So let's talk about what would come next, Elm test? Um, I think it was Elm verified examples, which start, started as a hack day um, project. Um, we have like monthly hack days. Yeah, I kind of got interested in, in doc tests, which it used to be called Elm doc tests. And doc tests are um, basically you write test in your comments for like, let's say you have a function, you have a little comment above and you add a few tests in there with a specific syntax. I think I first was exposed to doc test in Elixir um, because we also have two Elixir services and I was, I think it was pairing with someone on like make, making some fixes or something in an Elixir service and we we encountered those tests and I was, I got quite curious in, in, um, that approach of testing. Yeah. That kind of started, um, an experiment in basically proof of concept, if how hard it would be to introduce that to Elm. And basically what I ended up doing is, uh, very rudimentary. Um, I re-implemented that and have basically the same syntax as, as um, Python stock test. I think that was like one of the first languages who had doc tests. I think I, yeah, that was the first time I ever wrote a tool that was running uh, as a CLI tool in Elm. Um, right. So it has like a little startup JavaScript file and then it hooks up a, a Elm worker and all that parsing and so on is, is written in Elm. So basically what it does is it parses uh, the comments and generates 
actual Elm tests. Yeah. Um, and then you can use Elm tests or run it directly through Elm verified examples. Whenever I'm learning a new Elm uh, package and I go to the docs, I am always like holding my breath to find out will there be examples for all of the functions? And when there are examples, it makes me so happy because suddenly I'm, I, I'm filled with confidence that I'll be able to learn or, or make sense of this package. Whereas some packages, it's a bunch of hopefully well-named functions with like one-line descriptions of what they do. And occasionally I, I don't quite understand or I, I don't quite see what the different arguments for a function are supposed to be. Having an example makes all the difference and having those examples also be the tests or at least have them executed with your build to guarantee that those examples are correct and will work when examples are so important to the documentation any tool that will make the examples better or more reliable seems super valuable to me were you working on a particular package when when you built elm verify examples like was there something that you were documenting that you wanted these executable examples for no not really i was just like basically i was just trying to re-implement the thing from python and then later i like started to actually think about what i was building here um that's also when i i moved away i think also through evan's input i moved away from elm doc test as a name because i think it's not a replacement for tests it should be an improvement to your docs and not yeah. like a replacement per se. And that's when I also, like when I changed the name and also um, moved away from the original syntax from Python to something that looks a little bit more natural, I hope, where the expectation is basically just a normal Elm comment. And the example that actually runs is just an expression. So it should also be um, highlighted correctly in on the Elm package side. Oh yeah, so you get the correct highlighting for free, kind of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. Because the the line that is the expectation is just like dash dash, and then like an arrow. So it it's totally valid Elm code. That's amazing. I'm I'm scrolling through the README right now. I uh, I I am sold. The next Elm package I publish will definitely have uh, verified examples. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, like, this was the first command line tool you had built with Elm. You said, "What is that like? Is that a is that a well charted path?" Having uh, command line executed Elm, were you able to follow pre established patterns, or was there was there things that were weird about running Elm as a command line tool? I don't think I've seen it before. There were definitely people doing the same thing, I think, before. But I don't really have like, patterns to follow or anything. Um, and I think the, the parts that were difficult was like finding the right separation and figuring out how to write files in, or read files in, in in a nice way. So basically you yeah, just wow. use ports. Um, so it's, it's, I think easier than expected. <laughs> right. Is there JavaScript also running in response to those ports? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. To basically to read files and write files. That's, that's all I need from JavaScript and, and also the CLI, um, like parsing the arguments and so on is, is 
using a node package, which in hindsight might be nice to like actually have a library to parse the arguments. Mm, yeah. yeah. So what was your involvement in Elm test? So I think that was like shortly after I just was interested in, in improving testing and at the all hands we had in San Francisco, we had, we had a lengthy discussion about, um, how will Elm test look in the future and how can we make it, um, make it easier to use. And the reason why I initially started to be very interested about doc tests, because I think every extra step you need to write tests is like preventing people from actually writing tests. Mm. Um, so like the more you need to set up or like even just switching to it to a different file can be a burden. And then like you need to switch your file and you need to like hook it up in, in like the main uh, setup for your tests where you like collect like all the, the tests. So mm -hmm. back then we had um, had to write a main for tests where you basically had started to build up the whole testing tree, right? We had this idea that we it would be nice to automatically discover files that contain tests and run those immediately without needing to like set up the whole tree in, in a main. So we were looking at different ways to implement that. And that's when I started um, to work with Evan to build that little tool that is called LMI to JSON. And it's also written in Haskell. And what it basically does is it looks into Elm stuff and there are LMI and LMO files. Right. So I'm, I'm pretty sure like the LMO files, those are the compiled Elm as JavaScript. Those are yes. the Elm objects. What do the LMI files do? It's um, an interface file. So it basically defines the public interface to each module. So yeah, we can use those interface files to discover functions that are exposed. It also contains the type signatures of those functions. So we can figure out which functions are uh, actually tests. So that are just like test. So you build all of the files that are in the test directory and then you inspect the LMI files and see which one of those contained tests? Exactly. Exactly. So it, it basically is, um, I had to copy a bunch of um, the Elm compiler um, so that I have the, <laughs> the, the types that the compiler uses as well. And the Elmi files are binary files. So I can just easily use the types from the compiler to decode the binary. And then I had to write a few uh, JSON instances. So in Haskell, decoding and encoding JSON is um, done with a type clause. So you need to, to write a to JSON type clause um, instance and a from JSON instance if you need to decode. Um, so to like produce JSON output, I had to write the to JSON instance for all the mm -hmm. types that uh, were in the interface. So it's quite an easy tool to write. Um, and like whenever there is a new version of Elm, I need to copy over all the types and see that they compile and that there aren't any unnecessary code around and write the to JSON instances. And that's basically it. 
I'm, my mind is spinning at what other dev tools or whatever, what other things could you build now that you have access to the information of uh, what is contained in these compiled Elm files? I know there's like, there's a number of post compilation sort of things. Like we use, we use something to inject references to CSS modules into our compiled Elm code. And we do that by, by recognizing patterns in the compiled JavaScript. That makes me wonder like, uh, did we ever stop and think, ah, oh, you know, if we could, if we could know more about the Elm modules that were compiled, would we, would we be able to optimize that process? Would we, would we go about it a different way? That actually takes me back to a question about Jetpack I wanted to ask you, which is, uh, what is the story with assets and Jetpack? Because a lot of what Webpack does for us is it, it sees requires of static assets like image files and, and things like that, and it pulls them into the build. It gives the files unique cached file names so that uh, if they ever change, we bust the browser's cache. Is mm -hmm. Jetpack doing any of that stuff, or, or is, that, is that in the realm of features that you weren't using in Webpack and so you didn't need them in Jetpack? Yes, we, we didn't need that in, in Webpack, and we um, still solve that differently. Um, yeah, basically we generate uh, an Elm module containing um, references to static assets, and um, that is um, generated based on like the assets we have in our assets folder. And busting caches and stuff is done with a little bit JS in in the app. And so, I mean, apart from building dev tools uh, at No Red Ink, like what is what is your full-time job at No Red Ink? What do you do when you're not um, inventing new ways to parse Elm files? <laughs> um, so I'm an engineer manager. So that means like I'm part-time manager, part-time uh, IC. Um, mm -hmm. I currently manage six people, I think. So does that look like a team lead sort of situation or are you managing people in other teams? It's not a team lead. Um, kind of thing. We separate team leading and managing um, completely. Um, we do that at Cultramp as well. It's one of my favorite things that we do. Cool. Yeah. I, yeah. That's the first time I had that as well. And I think it's it works very well for us. But I don't manage people on different teams. We just started to kind of co-locate your manager with within your team so that you kind right. of have a little bit more oversight on their day-to-day -day work. It's fascinating. It's definitely a trade-off because uh, we've gone the other way with it for now at Cultramp. Whereas we actually favor your manager being a different in a in a different team. We recognize that creates a greater burden for understanding how is this person performing, what does their day-to-day -day look like, the things we've talked about that they're developing. How is how are those experiments going? Are they being successful or not? There's a lot more burden to finding out that information. But the benefit is that that you have an outside eye on not just your team, but your career at uh, the company. And mm -hmm. if there's someone who's like going to help you with a move to a better team for you or be looking out for opportunities somewhere else in the company for you that, uh, that are outside of your team, like having that, that person from outside your team be that advocate for you uh, in the broader context is a really valuable thing to have, mm -hmm. but yeah, it definitely doesn't come for free. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that burden was the main reason why we, we are changing to this model, but I still 
see my responsibility as their advocate and helping their them in their career uh, and not just in their day-to-day -day work for my team. Um, is that something you've done before? No, it's the first time actually. Um, I also never thought that I will ever be a manager um, because <laughs> I didn't, I, the experience I had before were, I would say, mixed. Definitely Switzerland has a very different company culture. I, I basically never had a one-on-ones regularly with a manager before um, or Heck someone yeah. who, who were like remotely concerned about my long-term career, not just at the company, but, but just like in general. I worked for a decade without ever having one-on-ones for the people I worked with or for as well. And then just at a certain point, I realized that that was the norm in the industry mm. and I had never experienced it before until I changed jobs and suddenly they went, what do you mean you've never had a one-on-one? -on -one? <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> Um, so I don't know how I don't know when they when they came in as a as a fashionable thing to do. Maybe it's been around for decades. But like yourself, I worked in the industry for a very long time without ever having that benefit. Yeah, I had such a great time, like starting at Nord Inc. Michael Glass was my manager back then, and he was just amazing. And it was just I was so grateful for having someone at the company where you're like starting at the company is always very difficult. I think. And someone who like is concerned about your well-being and like if you're balanced and like just there to talk to you, I think is is great. And shout out to Michael. Yeah, I would I wouldn't change that. Like I I don't want to work anywhere ever again where I don't have someone like that. Something our our CEO likes to say about about managers is that like good managers take care of their people. Really good managers uh, take pride in their people's accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And the really, really great managers take pride in their people going on to bigger and better things. So like sometimes something we talk about at CultureAmp is that like a successful manager, sometimes the version of success is that the person who works for you leaves the company to, for a better job. And their time at this company enabled them to get to that next stage of their career. And not everyone in the company is going to be looking out for how to get you the job outside of the company. But if your manager can be doing that under the right circumstances, it means you've got a really great manager. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, mm -hmm. um, totally. Like, I also think it's like everyone will leave at some point. That's just how it is. Yeah. And like, if you think someone will stay forever, that's just you're just lying to yourself. And yeah. I think we need to do the best we can um, with the people we have and help them grow uh, as a person uh, not, and not just at your company. So is there anything you've learned about yourself uh, on your journey to becoming a manager? Oh, yeah. I learned a ton. Um, yeah, I, I'm still continuing to learn a lot from the people I work with. Um, basically, I don't want to like sidetracked through too much from L, but I, I last year I started to um, to be very interested in, in self-improvement and I also started to meditate and just learned a lot about how I have certain patterns that I fall into um, and yeah. or that I would like 
of like I'm a, a solver, I, I always fall into the trap of trying to solve other people's problems. <laughs> and that's something like I was like, got very aware of when I started to manage because I, I don't think that's the way it, it's just like, it doesn't work, right? You can't solve someone else's problems. You can like help yes. them, but yes. you can't solve other people's problems. One of the uh, one of the surveys that is in the CultureAmp product is a a manager effectiveness survey, and it it as a manager it enables you to get feedback from the people you manage by ha having them answer a bunch of questions about your management style. And one of the questions that survey asks is, uh, does your manager ask questions more often than uh, uh, offering uh, proposed solutions? Um, and, uh, yeah, that's one that I had to work on as well. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Um, yeah. And besides management, I, um, I work in our internal team and it's called Puffins. Um, yeah, we basically build or try to, um, build our next architecture with Haskell. So we like did a lot of experiments and like did build, I think, three features in Haskell and one together with another team kind of to onboard them and see where we need to change things to make it easier uh, to get going. And now we we are preparing for the next project that will be with another team to onboard them. And yeah, yeah. That's great. I mean, like, so how many teams have been onboarded into that tooling now, would you say? It has been just us Puffins. Um, yep. And we did onboard uh, two other people who are now in our, um, who are now as SREs. Mm -hmm. And we did onboard, I think, four people from uh, a feature team that is called Labradoodles. And... <laughs> Are all of the team names at No Red Ink cute animals? Yeah. Uh, not, okay. I think one is Ink, so it's not like uh -huh. an animal, but it's like they have a little octopus as their yeah, right. emoji. Right. And so like this tooling that you're working on, is the is is it the kind of thing where you want this to become a, a self-service thing where people will be able to take it on without help eventually? Or is it a is it a service model where you are going to be onboarding every new tenant onto this architecture? Um, it hopefully will be self-service kind of thing. Yeah. But I think will always have some sort of onboarding just mm -hmm. to ramp up people in Haskell. And we try to make it as close to Elm as, as possible. Um, but still, I think some concepts like we use, we, we use, we use servant, which is like very, I think, advanced mm -hmm. um, concepts in Haskell. Um, but I, I see kind of like similar to how I started out with Jetpack. It's, I think, still very approachable. And if you just follow the patterns, you see on, on the, 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 their docs or in our code. I think it's not that hard to use, mm -hmm. but once you want to like start to understand what's actually going on, I think like, I think it's quite complicated to, to. Well, Rails is a bit like that as well, that when you're learning Rails for the first time, there are, there are some files that look completely different because they're written in a DSL. 
And it takes you a while to learn that that's just Ruby. Uh, it's just a different kind of Ruby with some some implicit magic behind it. Yeah, yeah. But eventually, like we have a few ideas to to build something that is that has the same characteristics as Servant, but mm -hmm. is um, hopefully more approachable. I don't know. So yeah, once upon a time, you uh, you decided or or followed some advice to maybe try Haskell for for Jetpack, and now you're working on No Red Ink's Haskell architecture. It's yeah. uh, it's kind of uh, you're you're working on the thing you are today because of Jetpack in a way. Definitely, like parts Jetpack. I don't want to like hog all <laughs> the, the 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 praise for that. Um, I think like a lot of other people were very um, and like a lot more than I am part of our journey to Haskell and um, I, I definitely want to thank the leadership for uh, the trust they gave us or still give us um, on like going on this journey and everyone who was involved in making making it the experience we have right now um, yeah well it's very exciting um like speaking of of working in the open and, and making things public i i love how willing people at no red ink are to to share these little glimpses into the journey as as we you know mm -hmm. we all we all figure out together yet another new way that makes sense to make web applications and uh um, it's exciting to to learn from your experience thank you yeah and i hope we'll be able to share more uh, of the things we, we do in Haskell soonish. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sterfel, for joining us in uh, Elmtown. It was great to have you on. Thank you, too. And thank you, listeners, for, for tuning in. We'll be back with another episode not too long from now. Bye for now. <laughs>